0: Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The
1: goal? To help you lead like never before. In your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode 253 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. Katie Cole is a fantastic leader and she's got a brand new book and we're going to drill into the subject uh, of the new rules for men and women in the workplace and creating a culture that leverages female leaders regardless of your theology. So this has been an issue in the church. Also in business, do women really have the same opportunities as men, et cetera? Et cetera. And Katie, honestly... One of the most refreshing voices I've ever heard on this subject. You're going to love this interview. She's brilliant. She's led at very, very high levels, and she is amazingly open-minded. So I think you're going to really enjoy today's episode. Also, want to say thank you for all of the support and all of the encouragement coming out of South by Southwest. I'll give you an update on that in a few minutes, but I, I got to tell you, it was an incredible experience I can't remember a time where I got more direct messages, texts, uh, and encouragement, comments, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, is as I did in my time at South by Southwest a couple of weeks ago. So I'm going to give you an update on that. But I want to talk to you about opportunities you may have missed. You ever missed like an amazing opportunity? So a buddy tells you about a special he got, but it's already over. Yeah, been there. Well, there is a special today that you do not want to miss with our friends at Pro Media Fire. Uh, A lot of churches are struggling to try to make it in terms of social media, not enough budget, etc. Well, how about 40% off the media bundle for life? Now, this special expires at the end of March, which check your watch real soon, okay? The media bundle includes custom video creation and graphic design for one monthly flat rate. You get a graphic designer, animator, and video editor for less than the cost of one staff hire, They can make your sermon series graphics, social ads, sermon bumpers, whatever media your church needs. Check out their video and design plans at promediafire.com forward slash carry. This is the last month for the media bundle launch special. If you're listening later, it was March, 2019. Don't miss it. 40% off. It's available only to listeners of this podcast, promediafire.com forward slash carry and get all of your media needs met. Also, how's your time management going? You know, a lot of people set New Year's resolutions. I know we're four months on the other side, pretty much, of New Year's resolutions. Uh, But life is busy and your phone's buzzing all the time. You got a million things to do. Your priorities get hijacked over the course of the day. If you haven't yet checked out the High Impact Leader course, it is open now. So head on over to the High Impact Leader. It's basically how I beat burnout and how I've stayed not only not burnt out, but like alive and well and doing podcasts and vlogging and speaking and preaching and writing books for the last 13 years. So I share my whole system with you at thehighimpactleader.com. Check it out. It's an online course that you can do on demand on whatever device you happen to be on anytime. And I would love to welcome you into the High Impact Leader. Get your life, get your leadership back. Go to thehighimpactleader.com and uh, yeah, love to see you inside that course and get you reclaiming time and energy and get all that working in your favor. Well, once again, hey, thank you so much for South by Southwest. It was really hard to describe how awesome that experience was. Um, I I blogged about it. We'll link to it in the show notes about uh, seven things I learned at South by Southwest. But even being with a crew that just generally doesn't go to church was so refreshing. Speaking in front of a crew that never goes to church, really fascinating, but best yet, just an amazing opportunity to connect with people. And like, it's really cool. Preachers never get invited to speak at events like South by Southwest. So to be there was exceptional. I hope to go back in the future. And I just wanted to say, thank you so, so much. To all of you, I know some of you voted back in August. I was part of the Panel Picker uh, program for South By. And uh, yeah, things went really, really well. And um, we will link to the blog post where I talked about it so that you can uh, check it out. Okay, you'll find all that in the show notes and a whole lot more. But in the meantime... My conversation with a woman who who I really have enjoyed getting to know over these last few months, she's got a brand new book called Developing Female Leaders. She has been an executive pastor at a very large church, served in a number of church and corporate positions, and I think is one of the freshest voices out there, perhaps the best on the new rules for men and women in the workplace. Here is my conversation with Katie Cole. Well, Katie, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Carrie, so much. It's really an honor to be with you, and I'm excited to talk about this subject.
1: Well, it's nice to to meet you. We're doing this virtually. You're in West Palm, which is always fun.
2: Yes, and usually sunny.
1: Is there anything bad about West Palm Beach?
2: Uh, the summers do get really warm. I think people don't realize that we just have reversed uh, seasons. So when we have little kids, we spend our summers inside in the air-conditioned playground at the mall, but we spend our winters outside, so it's opposite. <laughs>
1: well I'd, i'd take that that's pretty good
2: yeah the winter is very nice though that is true
1: and you and i were saying we're speaking at an event uh probably after this or before this airs in england together we're doing a few days with some church leaders who have gathered from across the uk and part of continental europe so that'll be a lot of fun
2: it will be exciting i'm excited to go over there and meet them and hang out with you so it'll be a good time
1: well, Katie, almost everywhere you've gone, you've had like this rocket ride into the executive level of leadership. So tell us a little bit about that,
2: oh gosh. well, i, d- I haven't really ever thought of it that way, but I have been really privileged to uh, have some wonderful leadership roles really uh, from early on. I think I have a um I'm just blessed to have a unique set of gifts that people like to applaud and promote. So I bring, you know, organization to chaos. I like to teach people and I love to interact with folks. And um, I'm also a two on the Enneagram, so that always makes me willing to help out in whatever Place needed, so leaders tend to love that about me, especially in Christian ministries. So, uh, yeah, I was a nurse professionally first; that was my first career, and that's how I ended up in Florida from the Pacific Northwest, and uh, worked in psychiatry and uh, throughout different places in a hospital, and then eventually moved to a Christian university here in town and uh, became dean in student development, overseeing health and wellness, and eventually residential life and programming. And from there, I was recruited by my church, which at the time was a couple thousand people. And growing rapidly. Uh, One site, we didn't know to call it one site then, but it was one site. And I came on staff to help them kind of scale the growth and just sort of, we were kind of just holding on for dear life because things were taking off and we weren't quite sure how to build the systems or how to structure things. So I came on and helped the executive and senior pastor work on those things.
1: Now, were you there before the transition at Christ Fellowship to Todd and Julie from Coach or after?
2: Oh, no, before. So I went on staff there around, uh, I think in the year 2000. So Coach Tom was the senior pastor and founding pastor. Todd was the worship leader at the time and just transitioning uh-huh. into the executive pastor role. He's had every job in the church, I think. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we were we were multiplying and uh, growing and trying to add staff and structure. And those of your leaders who have kind of gone in that those early days of high growth, that's a really wild, but exciting time. So we were just trying to figure everything out.
0: Hmm.
1: So we're going to talk about women in leadership. And I thought you wrote an incredible book on this. And I don't say that lightly. We have a lot of authors on the podcast. And uh, no, seriously, it's, I told you before we started recording, it's the best book on women in leadership I've read. And one of the things you do really cleverly, because I thought, I wonder where theologically uh, you're going to land. And there are a couple of times you use the word theology aside, and then you even have like a theological primer in your book about the different positions. So if you're listening from a business context and you're like, what are they talking about? Um, <laughs> there, There is in church world, shall we say, a difference of opinion about the role of women in leadership. Is that fair to say?
2: That's an accurate statement, yes.
1: Yes, okay. So I know business people are like, what? Uh, but anyway, uh, theology aside, can you really address, and that's where I want to start, can you really address the issue of women in leadership while putting theology aside, because we have egalitarians, complementarians listening to this, and some of them, if they got in a room, would really have serious disagreements. So can you just address this issue without, you know, having to take a position on it?
2: Well, I've had the privilege of growing up in a variety of different churches who now I realize had incredibly different views on this uh, theological perspective. And I was really blessed to be in those environments and had great opportunities to grow and great opportunities to learn. So I can honestly say I really respect and believe in churches from a variety of different perspectives on this issue. And it's a it's a great issue. The reason there's a debate about it is because it's not super clear and there's differences of opinions. But the challenge for me is, and the reason I think we can address it sort of regardless of where you stand, is that On one side, uh, we have complementarians who tend to uh, believe that women have certain roles that they can fulfill and certain roles they can't. In most uh, complementarian churches, it's totally great to use women in leadership over women's ministry, over children's ministry, and uh, there are great leaders doing great things there. However, in my experience, those leaders tend to be underdeveloped. They have fewer resources than the men in their a church who are leading men's ministry or student ministries or the equivalent. And so there's a lot of work to do there. Now, the challenge, though, is in egalitarian views, which is that women and men are fully equal. And some egalitarian churches believe they can be at any level of leadership, um, including senior pastor. Those churches, too, are struggling to develop the women in their congregations and help them grow in leadership. So I interviewed a couple high-level leaders from uh, egalitarian churches both from denominations who have been ordaining women for over 100 years, and none of them have, neither one of these churches have women on their leadership teams. So they are also trying to kind of crack the net. And a big piece of this is, especially in America, but I think even now that I've gotten to know some friends in Europe about this subject, We've sort of historically had these cultural perspectives of gender roles that are keeping women from really excelling into the leadership they can contribute, and many of it is inherited. And so a piece of this book for me is just trying to raise those issues, not trying to change someone's theology. If you have a conviction about something, I want to support you in that. But if you do have a conviction, let's get the most from the women that you uh, have in your congregation and who have gifts that they can bring to really help you fulfill the mission of your church.
1: It was interesting to me because often the, you know, books around, you know, so-and-so in leadership where it's a, a people group or whatever, they tend to have a perspective and there tends to be an argument. And what you said was so interesting that you've worked in egalitarian and complementarian settings where there was a ceiling on your leadership theologically and you were okay with both.
2: Yeah, I think for me personally, I never felt called to be a senior pastor. Um, And I didn't necessarily, I didn't go to seminary. I don't know that I necessarily should be teaching the Bible every week. So those things that were sort of out of reach to me didn't really offend me or bother me because they weren't my calling. I think it's different for women who feel called to those things and feel limited I am a great number two person. I at do well in executive style roles. And like I said, my makeup and sort of my willingness to jump in there and solve problems has really allowed me to fulfill that uh, in a lot of different ministry environments several different churches on uh, full-time staff. I had very unique titles and really weird, what I call a girl title, Uh, but the function (laughs) was very much the same. And so the the title never mattered to me. It didn't matter to me to have the corner office. It didn't bother me that people thought I was the pastor's wife or that I was his assistant. Those things didn't offend me because I really got to use my gifts to really make the church better. And that's all I really cared about.
1: I'm curious, what about the title thing? What's the, like, what happens with titles? It's like we won't give you executive director or pastor, so we'll call you X, or how did that play out? <laughs> yeah,
2: that's kind of exactly right. I know, unless you've done it, and I have a feeling there are many women leaders like laughing and rolling their eyes right now with me because it's mm-hmm. hard to, to believe what happens. But um, so I can think of a church I worked at, and um, I was fulfilling, I was basically taking over a role with, that was filled by a man before me. Um, And he was a associate pastor or something, and he got paid a certain amount. I came in as the, quote, special assistant. That was my title. (laughs) So I, you know, I had more degrees than he did. I had way more leadership skills. I had overseen bigger budgets. And I probably expanded the role, I think, under my leadership from what he was doing. But I got paid less. I got a weird title. I took over his office, but no one ever came to see me there. You know, it just has these kind of different nuances. And I think that's one of the things I'm trying to raise in this book is that If we actually stop as leaders and take a look at these systems and titles and ways we sort of inadvertently send messaging about women leaders, we'll realize we're being, in many ways, we're saying one thing and doing something else. So on one hand, they were saying, Katie, we value you. We know you have a lot of gifts. You are really making a difference here. And especially in private, I was very affirmed. But in the public world or from my business card, it looked like I you know, answered the phone and sort of reconciled the visa statement. And so <laughs> as a leader, it's challenging to have influence and exercise authority that hasn't really been given to you and yet at the same time, still get the project done, still deliver on goals and do it all while being, you know, likable and sort of in, in connection with everyone and building peer networks and, you know, all those challenges that we all have as leaders. There are some additional challenges for women in church leadership like that, that just it's not closed doors. They're just more doors you have to open yourself and not everyone can mm. figure that out always.
1: Well, and I think, I think because obviously, you know, the book's either just out or not quite out yet. And I had the opportunity to read it ahead of time. But I think what, you know, is so helpful to me, number one, you, as somebody who's always worked alongside women, you, you actually have women in your congregation. So regardless of your theological position, you know, at least half your church, often more, is female uh, secondly, I'm married, as I was sharing with you before we started recording, to a very gifted woman, you know, who's a lawyer and a pharmacist and soon to be an author. And so I'm very familiar with the skill set that God has given uh, incredible women and have worked alongside many, most of my team right now for this podcast, women, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it was it was convicting because I realized, ooh, I'm probably guilty of like some false ceilings as well as, you know, open as I try to be. But you started your book. Is the opening line something like "You have good hips for birthing"? Is that is that actually the opening line of your book? I haven't that got it is the opening right line.
2: It's. I'm hoping uh-huh. people open it up and, and keep going. So yeah, I was uh, in my early 20s. I'd graduated college and moved to Florida from the Seattle area, and I'd. Uh, found a great church and I was volunteering at the singles picnic. I'd probably been there like three months and uh, they put me in charge of the greeter table. So I was handing out name tags and welcoming everyone. And this guy, you know, and now I'm in my mid forties, but at the time when you're 22, a mid forties guy at the singles picnic is a little creepy anyway. And he comes (laughs) up and, and he says, uh, boy, you have really nice birthing hips. And I just probably why there. he was single
1: in his mid Yeah, anyway, <laughs> yeah I could
2: clue, clue us in a lot. It mm. was it was one of those just awkward moments uh, because you aren't quite sure what to do. And I'm trying to be, you know, Christian and welcoming, but it's very awkward and and so and what do you say to something like that? I'd never been complimented on that before, but it was good to know. <laughs> so That's So I think that was one of many awkward moments in ministry that I'm sure everyone experiences. I'm sure men have them too, but I don't know that many men get that kind of comment.
1: Can you, you you run through a list of things that you have actually heard or the people you interviewed, and I wonder if you could just sort of give us just a a snippet of that list, because I, I hope I haven't said, but I have definitely heard all of those things in my journey in leadership. And this this just orients around sort of the invisible barriers, the things we do that we may not even be aware of that are not helpful.
2: Yeah, well, and I think I want to start off by saying the reason I actually wrote this book is not because I want to help women get higher in leadership or fulfill things. I care about that. But I really wrote it because of all the amazing pastors who are men who are trying to do a good job about this and are trying to lean into the conversation and are trying to make headway and care about this issue or at least care about the women on their team or their own wives and daughters. I just have met so many in the last couple years and yet they'll tell me these things that they say to the women on their team and they really don't realize how harmful, or at the very least awkward, these kinds of statements or attitudes are, and what they tell women that are, is inadvertent. So, one of the most popular is uh, as a pastor who sees a developing woman that, um, or a developing leader that they is female, and they want to help her take steps of leadership, and so they put her in the role that's open. You know, and kind of easy. So they make her his assistant. And so now she gets to come to the team meeting and she gets to sit down on decisions and she gets to know and learn what's going on. Well, unless you also do that for men on your team, that's really not a developmental role. Yes, she gets to be a part of those things. But unless every leader at your church is taking minutes and making coffee, that's really not a developmental role. It's really assisting you. And it probably feels great to her but it's not preparing her to lead her own team meeting. It's not putting her in charge of a ministry. Um, a couple other things is uh, we wanted, I heard someone say once, you know, we wanted to give this gal a promotion. It was a great job for her, but we were, she had been married a year. We figured she was gonna get pregnant. So we didn't wanna give her this job um, with a baby on the way, or if she was trying to, we didn't wanna discourage her from having a family. And although that's a really great pastoral heart, that is very discriminatory. And at the very least, just, just yeah. you know requires a conversation with her and i think that's the piece i see the most is really well meaning pastors taking on a pastoral role for the women on their team rather than a leader role and making assumptions for them with a good heart but they're usually at the very least the wrong assumption but at the very most they're leaving her out of the conversation and she doesn't have an opportunity to even know she's being considered for the role let alone being bypassed for a promotion because of something she's deciding in her family.
1: Before we move to the next point, there's a few more. Can you coach me on that one? Because that is a very real issue. And I have my assistant I've worked with for 10 years. She was single when she started out. I did their wedding. I I also work with her husband, uh, you know, and she's now two children in, which is great. She's on mat leave and coming back this summer. But like, how do you, we've had those conversations in very, I hope, helpful ways. We've had that 10-year history, but that is a very real issue for women and men. So uh, can you have that conversation? Are you not supposed to have that conversation? How do you have that conversation? Because if someone's out of the workplace for six weeks, three months, or in, in my country, a year, like that is an issue for everybody. So how do you have that in a way that's helpful?
2: Yeah, I think for me, I found the most helpful is to realize you're actually having two different conversations. You're having a leadership, uh, supervisor, boss, employer conversation, which has some really significant HR and legal ramifications to what you say Mm -hmm. and how you say it and, and how you approach that. But you're also someone's pastor, and so you have a heart for them, and you want to guide them through these challenging early family years. It's not easy to know when you're a woman who has great leadership gifts how to steward that well. Because uh, I I know some women who feel like they want to che- they don't want to be home with their kids and they want their career people, and but most of the women I know feel torn. I want to be great mm. at both, and. How do I make that decision? And I actually could really use a pastor in my life in that moment to decide, do I want to have more kids or is my potential in the kingdom through ministry greater than my potential as a mom? Is there a way to have both? Is Will my church work with me on that? What should I ask my boss for? And so when uh, leaders who are pastors and bosses go into that conversation, there are two sides to it. And I've just found it really helpful to name which side you're talking about. So... I wanna have a leadership conversation with you as your employer. Here are the things I want you to know. I see this in you. I see these things in you. We have this new job coming up. I think you would be great at it. Now I wanna flip hats and I wanna talk to you as your pastor. And I wanna say, I care deeply about you as a person. I would never want you to feel pressure to take on more at this church than is healthy for you in your marriage. I want you to be the best mom that you can be. And there will always be room for you here God isn't limited by your parenting. And so mm. your life is long. You can have everything. You may just not be able to have it all at the same time. How can we support you as your church family in finding and fulfilling your calling? In fact, all of your callings. How can I pastor you? Which is a totally separate conversation then. Will you take the job and how long will we be gone on maternity leave? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's really helpful. And you know, that that's not unlike our conversations that we've had You want to try, you're really happy for her as a person, as a friend, as like, I'm cheering for you. And then you have a separate conversation about, so what does this mean like for work, right? And I'm always trying to not put pressure on while at the same time as an employer, you're like, yeah, if you want to come back tomorrow, you can come back tomorrow, right? Like, you know. So it's that it's 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 that's super helpful, and that's that's for everybody. I mean, anybody who's a boss or a supervisor in any way uh, goes through that. And increasingly, it's for dads as well as for women, right? For absolutely,
2: yeah. The the tide is shifting on that for sure. It's a conversation everyone's trying to sort of renegotiate and find new ways. I I want to encourage leaders to really be open to new ways of thinking about that, and just encourage you to think about the long play when it comes to. Uh, especially young leaders who are in that those family years, both men and women, but particularly women. Because when you champion a woman to build her career as she's parenting, there is a loyalty that comes back to that that is hard to replace or get anywhere else. And we know that. We know that if there's someone who lets us take maternity leave and our job is still there or something similar, or we can flex our work time while we have small kids or work more during the school year and less during summer so we can be home a little bit more or just more available that is that is gold to me when i'm trying to meet all the demands that uh, are on my life and all the opportunities god has given me i want to steward all of it and i really believe there's a win like i think i can win at all of it in some way or another so Being able to really kind of play the long game with someone and know that on the other side of those early, especially the early parenting years, there is a commitment and a vitality and a a ability to contribute. I think that's so much greater when someone has been through that and learned to juggle all those things and their ability to minister is so different when they are on the other side of parenting. And so we want those women to make it in ministry over the long haul. We don't want just everyone to work till they're, you know, be in ministry till you're 25, then you stay home for 20 years and then you, I don't know what you do on the other side. Re-enter at
1: 45 or 50, right? Yeah,
2: Yeah. keeping a foot in is hugely valuable for me as a female leader, but it's hugely valuable for the church as well.
1: Well, and you know, the gig economy and remote work and virtual offices and virtual teams just make that easier and easier every year with technology. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And I think we'll be continuing to see that uh, reinvent and be more the demand. And so I would say to business leaders, particularly, you probably are already looking at this because the marketplace is a little ahead of the church, but especially in churches, just to be open to how we think about these things differently. And uh, there's a lot of best practices out there about how to steward that well. You don't have to be worried that someone's just at home, you know, reading magazines and doing her laundry. Like she's, she's huffing it. She's making it happen. She's a hustler. She can do it.
1: Well, you can make the argument that virtual teams are actually more efficient than uh, in-person teams. But it's so funny how, uh, you know, I'm just going back in my mind to when I was in law. And I mean, I remember, can this person work part-time was a serious conversation. And now it's a joke, you know, <laughs> because you don't you don't have to show up chained to a desk from eight to four. I mean, you can work off your phone, work off your iPad, your your laptop from your home, from a coffee shop. You know, with, with you can work from three o'clock in the morning till seven if you want to. Like there there is so much work that can be done, and uh, we live in an age where more is possible than ever before. So anyway, uh, you know, I, it's it's interesting too, Katie. I read a piece, and I may have the number wrong, but it was staggeringly high. Something like 70% of Generation Z, which is basically college and younger, want to work in the gig economy. Like, they don't want a traditional job. It's like, I'm going to work for myself, see if you can grab my talent, which creates all kinds of possibilities for people who are parenting in at that stage.
2: Oh, absolutely. I see it in young adults all the time. Uh, I have a 15-year-old, even he sees it that way, that uh, why would you be chained down? I want to do this thing at this time and I only want to work during these hours. And so the flexibility and the ability to perform versus clock in for hours is a huge motivator for them. And I think too, when you're talking about leadership, we're really talking about the knowledge economy. It's not about clocking in transactions or services we're talking about having people's brains working on, on problems and, and creating solutions and connecting with people and, and leading. And that is something that kind of never shuts off for most of us. And so the ability to be at the right meeting at the right time and then have those things percolating in the background, even while we're, you know, putting kids on the bus or whatever, you know, those things are kind of a 24-7 job anyway. So the ability to just steward our time better and, and be able to meet all of those demands at one time is really exciting to think about.
1: So one of the things I, th- I thought you did really, really well, and you helped me <laughs> kind of just see the invisible cultural things that probably are, are even more invisible to guys than they are to women, but you quote a poem by David Scholler, is it?
0: Which, yes. <laughs> which was
1: it's 100% in jest, but really revealing, listing 10 reasons men should not be pastors. And uh, do, do you want to just read some of the, I mean, people should buy your book. They really should. But you want to just read a few of the reasons that men should not be pastors. And if you're going like, what? Just, just listen in, because this was this was brilliant. I'd never seen that.
2: So this, yeah, it it is in jest, and I'll tell you, it was actually really convicting to me because I realized how many things I had absorbed incorrectly about really what God says about women. So, uh, ten reasons why men shouldn't be pastors. Number ten: A man's place is in the army. So the equivalent to that is, you know, a woman's place is in the home. And so we don't really think about that for yeah. guys. Uh, one of them says, uh, their physical build indicates that they are more suited to such tasks as chopping down trees and wrestling mountain lions. It would be unnatural for them to do other forms of work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Right. One of, of my favorites. That was, yeah. that was brilliant.
2: Uh, men are too emotional to be priests or pastors. Their conduct at football and basketball games demonstrates this often. <laughs> Uh, Pastors need to nurture their congregations, but this is not a traditionally male role. Throughout history, women have been recognized as not only more skilled than men at nurturing, but also more fervently attracted to it. This makes them the obvious choice for pastoral ordination. And then my personal favorite, number one, men can still be involved in church activities even without being ordained. They can sweep sidewalks, repair the church roof, and perhaps even lead the singing on Father's Day. By confining them to such traditional male roles, they can still be a vital, important part of the life of the church.
1: Wow! Yeah, I mean, I read that, and and it just it challenges so many assumptions in a very humorous way. And I think that was my biggest takeaway from the book. And I mean, you do, you deal with so many issues, and 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 we'll go in that direction. Uh, but thank you for sharing that. That was really good. So that is David Scholler, 10 Reasons Men Shouldn't Be Pastors. Fascinating. Yeah,
2: I I think one of the interesting things about gender bias is there are many things that hold women back, but there are many things that hold men back too, because men carry just as many gender biases. And for my friends who maybe aren't good at chopping wood and wrestling mountain lions, you know, there is a challenge for men to feel like they aren't manly enough, or they're not strong enough leaders, or they... They don't like to speak in public. And so how can they have a role in the church? I think that is just as damaging to men as some of these female gender roles are to women. So part of it is just challenging our assumptions about how we look at people and realize that the uniqueness of our giftedness, there's more variety than we realize between just male and female. There's the individuality that God gives us and having freedom to be fully who he made us to be.
1: Mm. Okay, you say that women experience a sticky floor. Can you explain that?
2: Yeah, so this is sort of the second part to what we all probably have heard about, which is the glass ceiling. In the church, we call it the stained glass ceiling, which are sort of organizational barriers or systems that keep women from advancing in leadership. The sticky floor, though, is something that sort of holds her back for different reasons. The sticky floor are internal things that tend to uh, keep women from pursuing leadership or advancing in leadership, and they're, they're more what's going on in the inside of her. So a couple examples. Uh, one especially female leaders, tend to really battle perfectionism and, uh, you know, wanting to be great at everything, wanting to be great from the very beginning. There's one uh, research project that I talk about in the book where uh, when they gave um, men and women a job description, men tended to feel uh, that they could apply for the job and probably do a really good job performing if they Uh, were 60% confident of the tasks or skills needed on the job description. So if they felt good about 60%, they could go for it. If a woman looked at the same job description, she had to feel confident about 100% of the things on the job description from day one before she would even apply. She wouldn't even apply for the job to see if she would get it. And so that has huge implications if you think about it because we might post a role for a staff position or even a volunteer coordinator of you know the greeters or whatever and a woman's going to look at what you're asking for and if and if she doesn't have 100% of those things from day 1 or has never performed the job before she feels like she's not qualified. But we know in leadership development, no one goes into their next leadership role having done it before. That's what advancement is all about. So every new job is new. And so we have to help women kind of overcome that sticky floor piece that says, I have to be great and perfect from the very beginning. The second side of that is... uh, Really, perfectionism is a symptom of of insecurity. And one of the other pieces of insecurity is this idea of the imposter syndrome. Maybe you've heard it before, this idea that Mm -hmm. you kind of feel like you're a fake or you don't really belong or they're going to discover that you're not as good as they think you are. And so women battle that uh, usually more often than men. And definitely in a church environment where they feel like leading might actually be wrong or they've experienced people telling them they shouldn't be leading or shouldn't be taking charge or their gifts are not welcome, that imposter syndrome gets really inflated for women. Um, One other one that's very interesting is that women tend to wait for someone to notice their performance or their contribution they're usually not quick to offer it. They don't tell people about things they've accomplished. They don't like to write a resume. And so when you're a church leader and you don't really know who's getting the job done and you have these you know, quiet leaders just sort of serving, waiting to be noticed, we're really at a disadvantage because we need to know what people are good at. We need to know what they've accomplished. That helps us know what their potential is. And so women tend to hold themselves back because they don't want to talk about themselves. They don't want to let people know. They kind of take too seriously Christian humility to to the point where they actually aren't even a part of the conversation. So those are some examples of sticky floor. We go into f- quite a few more of them in the book.
1: But how do you do that without being seen as um, aggressive or self-promoting? I mean, that's the line you're getting to, right?
2: Yeah, it is a fine line. I'm sure men deal with this also. Uh, for me, I think the advice that I got from most of the people that I interviewed for the book is just the need to be honest. You know, Paul talks about like being sober about ourselves and just if someone says, "Hey, have you ever done this before? Would you like to, you know, close in prayer?" just saying yes or yes, I've done that before or I would love to do that instead of kind of going, "Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'll be good enough." You know, just that kind of seeds of doubt really isn't very godly. Um that's different than going for something or demanding to be seen or meeting with the senior pastor and showing him your resume like that's the extreme. We don't want to be that. that's what we're all
1: afraid of becoming, right?
2: Yes. Women are afraid of becoming that. We don't want to be that person. Uh, but if someone asks us or if we do have an opportunity and and we have experience with something, we should be forward in offering it and saying, hey, you know, I'm a CPA. I'd love to help you figure out the church finances if I can ever be of service. You know, that's very different mm-hmm. than demanding someone affirm you for gifting or give you a role or demanding leadership. That's not the leader we want to recruit. We want to recruit humble leaders, but we want to recruit confident, uh, honest leaders also.
1: So I'm going to ask you some personal questions. How did you get noticed? Uh, You keep ending up in these executive roles. So how did you navigate that? Did you apply? Did you get invited? I'm just curious how that worked out in your life.
2: Uh, most of the time, I got invited. I think uh, I've I've been someone that's really tried to bloom where I'm planted, and so again, I think if if you're someone who can identify problems and likes to solve them, that is pretty easy to notice in people. Um, and so, and also I've been very respectful and I really, I have a lot of energy, but I have very little ambition. And so uh, I like to do, and I like to be a part of things and I like to help things move forward. Um, I rarely have an agenda for myself. Um, even like this book, I've I've thought about writing a book. It's a fun dream to have, but I certainly didn't know how to go after it. And so Um, you know, I think that's the kind of unique combination that most leaders are looking for, you know, a reluctant leader, someone who's got great potential, great energy, has the capacity, but is just a little reluctant to assume they should be doing these projects, but could be easily convinced.
1: Well, somebody who puts live events together a few times a year... (laughs) You know, it's it's axiomatic among event planners that the person who wants to speak at your conference probably is not the person you want to speak at your conference. And the person that you have to nudge or invite or uh, hope to get is probably the person you want, which is, which is interesting. It's just a human thing. Um, Seth Godin says that you should pick yourself. Like, you know, a lot of people are out there waiting to be picked, waiting to get noticed. So you did something, I don't know how long ago, but when we were setting up the interview, you know, I've been on your website. It's great. It's really, really well put together. You obviously picked yourself. You said, you know what? I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to coach, speak, equip, write. How did you do that? How did you decide? Because this is an issue for anybody. Like I'm doing this. And it was sort of this sideline that just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it's like a big chunk of my life right now. Um, But how did you pick yourself?
2: Well, uh, probably reluctantly, to be honest. Um, I, uh, yeah, it felt like it was time to transition out of my full-time ministry staff role, mostly because my personal journey, my husband's had a lot of chronic health issues and we have been raising a son together and uh, I was leading at very high levels at a very big church that was moving fast and I could tell internally I was having a hard time recalibrating even though my husband was getting healthier. And so I knew I needed to do a change and my my leaders were amazing at trying to accommodate and give me options and I just couldn't, I couldn't like flip the coin. Um, so reluctantly, I left my staff role and just sort of put some feelers out. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm picking myself for a sabbatical. That's the one thing I did pick is a sabbatical yeah, yeah. for myself. Uh, and then God just sort of started opening some doors. Uh, I work a lot with Leadership Network in Dallas, which was really rewarding. I do love church and I do love leaders and I love strategizing and helping things be fully what they're called to be. And so, you know, one door kind of led to another and this, you know, the website I have now is not the website I started out with two and a half years ago. That was more just like me and a, you know, an email. Um, So (laughs) I've kind of grown into it. And then, you know, God just, you know, I get tired. And so I go, you know, will anyone hire me just to work at their place? And I don't have to think about all these things. And then something like a book deal comes out of the blue, or I get to be on a podcast with you. And I think, oh. Maybe there's still more in this. I I think too, you know, um, life often imitates art. I think for me as a female leader, uh, because I was very comfortable and somewhat wired for a number two role, um, I never had to worry that number one was in my future. I knew I would never be Mm -hmm. a senior pastor. I didn't feel called to that. I was in churches where that wasn't even on the radar. And so there was a lot of safety for me in that and i i think the personal journey for me even just as a leader and as a believer following the lord is exploring my actual leadership gifts i've often teased that i i don't i'm not gifted in leadership i don't have a like a romans 12 leadership gift i'm a learned leader everything i know about leadership i had to learn it's it wasn't intuitive for me and but now i'm like huh i might have more in there than i thought i did and I think I'm supposed to kind of take it, you know, take my leadership legs out for a run and see how fast I can go or how far I can go or what that might look like for me. And it's incredibly uncomfortable. I don't enjoy it, but I enjoy the process of living by faith at a deeper level and expanding my own abilities and um, I think confidence is probably the right word Um like the, my ability to, to conquer some things, mostly at the helm of the leadership decisions.
1: Oh, see, that's really interesting to me because I actually did read your book. I don't read every book getting ready for an interview, but this one kind of brought me in and I'm like, I need to read this book. So I did. But that that didn't come through uh, the pages of the book, which is really interesting. And it's reminding me of another interview I did with Cheryl Batchelder. I don't know whether you know of Cheryl, but she was the CEO most recently of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. And I did an interview with her, which I think is pretty much a masterclass, like a mini MBA. But she had that kind of reluctant leadership too. It's not like at 20, she's like, I'm going to be CEO and you know lead this company to 5x growth or 100x growth or whatever it was you know, but there she is continually being nudged. I think she got recruited by her board. It's like, well, you should just be the next CEO. And she's like, what is that? Like, I don't know. A lot of guys would linger in the sidelines for that long. Maybe I'm wrong, but can you talk about that process a bit more?
2: Uh, Sure. I I actually think a piece of it is my age. So I'm in my mid forties. And I think we, you know, I was the first generation of Girls that had science programs for us. You know, I was the, I yeah. remember winning some science fair thing in eighth grade, and everyone was like, a girl won the science fair. I was on the news. It was like big stuff. I was talking about being becoming a nuclear physicist at some point in my life, and I'm not sure where that came from. I don't even know what they do. But I just, you know, I was kind of in that first wave of of women to come out of the 70s and come of age in the 80s and early 90s, where leadership was being taught and we were be, being being given opportunities, a wave of people going to college, not having babies at 19. Um, so, So our reluctance, I think, is rooted in some of these cultural norms that I grew up with. You know, I was raised by a mom who couldn't get a credit card in her (laughs) forties, you know, she had to have her husband co-signed. So, you know, those are the, those are the things I grew up with and kind of the conditioning that I experienced. I'm, I mentor a lot of young women now and disciple them. I love it, but there are very few women under 25 who don't think they're going to run their own amazing nonprofit in the next three years. Like they just, Mm -hmm. they know they're meant for greatness. They're starting companies. They're going after stuff. They know they can have it all there. They've grown up in just a completely different environment, and so I think part of that reluctance, especially for women, um, is is what we've experienced. And we are kind of on the front edge. You know, I was one of the first women executive pastors in our network that we founded. And at the time, you know, we only have like 30 of us in there. So it's not not a big group, but I imagine, you know, in a decade it will be. And I actually think this book is, you know, timely for now. I don't think it's going to be relevant eight to 10 years from now, I hope. I hope that we've really made progress and we have a whole bunch of women who don't have a hard time kind of speaking up or letting people know what they can do or they can imagine themselves leading big ministries or being a part of a movement of something. I think that's in our future.
1: One of your pieces of advice is that uh, regardless of who the the boss or the hirer is or the CEO is, that you only, or pastor, only hire great female leaders. What do you mean by that? Did I get that right?
2: Yeah. I think one of the things that I've seen repeatedly happen and even have experienced myself is That when pastors decide they want to start including women, they go to the women they are closest to and trust the most. So they turn to their wife, they turn to their administrative assistant, maybe the elder's, you know, wife that they've known for 20 years. So, which is wonderful. And these women might be great leaders, but chances are they're not. Um, So it's, Unusual to have really two high capacity, you know, type A personalities in a marriage together. Like you've got one, but not everyone has that. Yeah, we
1: made it. Uh, we made yeah. it. And we're actually having fun now, but there have been there's some more fireworks. and more of it.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah, It's it's tricky. You know, usually opposites attract. And so I think part of what's reinforced this in the church world for longer than the rest of kind of our society is that, you know, churches are started by high entrepreneurial, big L leader men. And those men tend to to marry women who don't have those same giftings. and so it's a softer woman it's someone behind the scenes with the gift of helps. this these are the pastors I grew up with Their wife's sure. in the nursery, doesn't want to be on stage and so so we kind and so when they teach about marriage or leadership they talk about men and women in their mindset. They are the man and she is the woman and they happen to reinforce these cultural gender roles. So when they start to want to bring women up, they want to bring their wife on stage or they want to talk to their admin assistant. And I'm those are great women and they should share their perspective. But if you're looking for leaders your leaders are probably not hiding in the shadows and afraid to talk. Your leaders are running companies, they're lawyers, they're running the school board, they're principals. They're, they're out doing great leadership, in, the, in usually in the marketplace because they haven't been able to in the church. Those are your female leaders. And so if you want to bring someone on staff to run all of your small groups, please don't bring the person who's been great at organizing, you know, food for the funerals. Like, please go get the woman who started her own company or who is managing the mall down the street. Like, get that leader to come in and run small groups. That's the person who's actually going to move that ministry forward.
1: Yeah, I think back over a decade now, and I realized our church at the size needed an executive pastor. And so the best person I could find was actually a woman in her early 30s who was working at Pepsi at the time, and she was a senior leader there. I pulled her aside. I said, how would you like a massive pay cut? <laughs> you know, just because that's church world. And uh, I'll tell you, the hardest thing for her was the culture shock. Was, you know, and I tend to be pretty open, I think. But just, uh, I was telling you, we went to a, a big church event and all the the men were doing one breakout and the women were all invited to the other. And it was basically, you know, how to, how to do macrame and bake cookies And she was horrified. And it was like, are you kidding me? No one did this at Pepsi. Like it's the weirdest thing. These, these gender assignments that we have in the church. And uh, so, yeah, she didn't go to any more of those breakouts. We took her to the senior leader stuff.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's really awkward for women because we do. um, And it's, it is changing. I will say it. There's, this happens less frequently now. And I think more people are aware of it, but uh, you go to a conference, and I'm, you know, leading big parts of ministry or leading a new initiative to launch campuses. And my options are the pastor, the the men in one room, and then the women in the other. And the leaders are all in the men's room, and the women are the wives who are kind of planning shopping trips. And it's discouraging, but I you kind of wonder where should you go. And so I just encourage women go to the leader room. Like you're there to be a leader, go to the leader room, and usually that begins to shift the conversation or bring awareness to it.
1: Mm, that's good. You also have some thoughts on pay and platform time. Those are a couple of things you've identified as issues. And it seems silly that we're talking about equal pay for equal work, but, or work of equal value. But what are your thoughts on that?
2: Oh yeah, this is, I think those are two areas that if if you actually want to make forward progress on this topic, these are two places to really lean into because you can measure them. So, mm. so much of these conversations are, kind of, um, they're they're abstract, they're qualitative, there's a feel to it, it's nuanced, it's kind of hard to put your finger on, it's hard for women to explain, but when it comes down to are you paying women, the same thing you're paying men, that's a pretty black and white issue. Generally speaking in the church world, uh, women make 72% of what men make for the exact same role and responsibilities. Uh, That is just, I think as believers, we all know that's wrong. (laughs) And so we can actually pull our HR files or have someone audit it for us and make sure we're paying people what they're worth. And also being honest about who's doing the real work. There are a lot of amazing women leaders who are the coordinator or the ministry assistant or the admin who are running the ministry. And the pastor is getting the pay and the accolades but isn't really involved in it. It's it's not the same as delegation. I'm all about team building and delegation, but I'm talking about uh, in fact, I've had experience with a, a church recently that I've been working with, and they recruited a campus pastor who was just blowing the doors off in his youth group at his old church, and they recruited him to be a campus pastor, and it's he's struggling but he wasn't really the guy running the youth group. Who they meant to hire was the person who actually was running the youth group, which wasn't him, even though he looked like it. And so it's really easy with men in leadership and women kind of right hands to mistake who the real leader is in that team. And so making sure you're paying the right person for the right work. Um, When it comes to platform, I think it's another thing. I really encourage churches to count how many times you have women on the platform. If we want women to be seen and valued, we have to uh, have women, we have to see women being valued. Let me say that again. If we want women to be seen and valued, we have to see women being valued. And the platform in the church space is where we communicate value. And so even if you're not into women preaching, which that's, that's the theological issue, I'm not even talking about that. I mean, getting up and giving the welcome giving the announcements. I don't know any guy who likes to give announcements. So find some women and let who are good communicators and let them give the announcements. In fact, assign them to do it. Get women on your platform and help just, it changes the dynamic in the congregation when they see a woman doing something that is important. It changes the entire conversation. And it tells especially your young women that there is a place for them to contribute in ministry. Marrying the guy at youth group who feels called to be a pastor is not your way to have influence in leadership. Being someone who has skills and can do something, that is how you can have leadership and influence here.
1: No, I think that's really good. I want to run something by you. It's not so much a question as just an observation, but, you know, as someone who's spent a lot of time trying to help our board, our elders, set reasonable compensation levels for men and women. One of the things i found really helpful, because if you've been with someone for a while, it can get muddy. It's like, well, we give them a raise last year and the year before. So I always flip to... Okay, if this person was gone today and we had to hire their replacement, male or female, what is that going to cost us? And sometimes you realize, oh my gosh, there's a $10,000 gap. Or like, I know I'm not going to get someone at this level, which tells me that person is underpaid. Is that a, Would you think that would be a helpful way to value, like if this woman wasn't doing the job and you were going out to hire a guy to do it tomorrow, what would you pay that guy pay her that amount. Is that a helpful way to think about it?
2: I think that's a brilliant way to think about it. Absolutely. And yeah, I think we're really talking about in the leadership space, we're talking about the value people bring more than the number of hours they work. And so-
1: The whole hours thing is just so, I don't know, 20th century.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I do think that uh, it's unfortunate. I work with a lot of leaders, men and women who leave their church for a better job and then get recruited back and earn huge, like like tons more money because they got recruited back, and it just mm-hmm. I would I just would love for people to be able to stay on their actual team and grow in their leadership significantly without having to leave in order to be fully valued. That would be a great next step.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a real problem. The longer someone stays, because maybe they started with you when they're twenty or twenty five. And now they're in their 30s. They've been there a decade. And so you kind of edge them up a little bit beyond inflation, but you realize, no, their value to the organization is like, 30% Thirty percent more than what you're paying them, and so they walk out the door, and you know you you're looking for the new person. You're way behind the eight ball, so just pay them that today. Okay, yeah, and
2: good. actually, people become more valuable the longer they're with you. They know more people, they're more integrated, they understand the culture deeper. I I don't want to pass by what you just said too, where um if if you're looking at equal pay, you're asking yourself what would we do for a man to come in and do this role because. I think there is still a lot of assumptions that women don't need to earn as much money or if they're married Mm. to someone who makes a lot of money that they're not the main breadwinner. And so those sort of things just need to not be a part of our decision-making and conversation anymore. I talk about in the book, I have a, a really good friend who's an executive pastor and she basically gives back a bunch of her salary every year because they don't require it to live. But she would have a totally different experience if she were just paid a secretary's salary rather than being paid what she's valued, and yet the church still benefits from it. So just making sure that we are paying people what they're worth and that we're making and testing the male-female thing to make sure we don't have some unconscious biases against paying women high-value jobs.
1: No, I think that's so good. And value to the organization, right? What you say. So if somebody has a wealthy spouse, male or female, doesn't mean you shouldn't pay them a salary. It's like pay them what what that job is worth. And then if they want to donate it all back, let them donate it all back. Because at some point if they leave, you're going to have to hire that position anyway, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, I thought it was really helpful for you to emphasize a safe space at work. And obviously with all the stories, especially over the last few years of sexual harassment at work, um, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger than just inappropriate sexual conduct or relationships. So can you talk to us about what it means to create a safe space at work and what kind of behaviors are appropriate and which are inappropriate?
2: So I think our society has definitely lost its ability to navigate and manage relationships very well. And uh, the sexual (laughs) revolution is a part of that. I think the breakdown of the family is a part of that. So one of the things I talk about in the book is our need, especially as spiritual leaders to be re-educating our leadership, our teams, and our churches about how relationships can work and how God sets them up. And so I talk a bit about uh, Joseph Meyer's book, The Search to Belong, where he, I think, does a beautiful job laying out four different kinds of relationships and sort of the physical, emotional, spiritual boundaries that happen for each of those. So there's public relationships that are distant, you know, aware of people, but distant. There's social relationships There's personal relationships like our friendships and immediate family. And then there's intimate relationships, which are reserved for really just husband and wives, and maybe, you know, parents with small children, it's, it's close proximity. And we have a tendency in church, I think, to over communicate the need for connection and intimacy and authenticity and community. You combine that with a culture that we've all grown up in with, which isn't teaching these proper healthy boundaries. um, And, and it has just really messed up our ability to have great relationships in healthy zones and healthy spaces. And so I think that is a huge, to me, that's an underlying foundation to make sure people are actually coming at this from the same mentality. It's not just about not sleeping with your coworker. It's not just about not pinning some girl down, you know, or making, thinking some really horrible statement. It's about stewarding our relationships. And John Orpberg does a great job uh, talking about uh, this idea of the sibling test, that really we're a family. And our relationships, especially in the church, should be like brother and sister. We are a family as Christians, and we're supposed to be brothers and sisters. And so our treatment of one another should really reflect that. My relationship with my husband is not a sibling relationship. We do things siblings should not do. (laughs) And so, and that's wonderful. But making sure that when we're in church relationships, we've got these other ways of thinking about it. And I, I feel like the conversation about this has just not... Uh, We've not done a good job educating ourselves and reestablishing what God really formed for us. We've kind of let that go in our church circles. And I think we need to reclaim that if we're really going to create safe spaces. Now, on the leadership side of it, when you have these foundations of proper levels of intimacy and the ways that we look at one another, it's easier to set professional boundaries and healthy guidelines Um, I think one of the things that um, people talk about a lot is the Billy Graham rule. And I think it's in a, you know, I've been the beneficiary of this rule because I've been in several different church environments. And I am thankful and unique in that I have never really had a situation that has been horribly uncomfortable or inappropriate. I've never had to bring charges against someone in authority over me. I've had some super awkward moments that make for hilarious stories, but I haven't actually had, you know, those boundaries have been wonderful <laughs> for me. Um, however, I really don't know that, that um, those harsh rules are go far enough for us in today's world. So uh, I grew up um, in leadership in college in Seattle. You know, I, I was an RA in my dorm and one of my biggest challenges is I had a resident I was in the all-girls freshman dorm. You'd think this would be a safe place at a Christian campus. And one of the girls fell in love with me. She's a lesbian. She fell in love with me. I had She lived mm. next door. We were in common showers, like all of these things. And so my, you know, when I was 20, I'm navigating this. Well, just now I feel like the church is finally going, hey, we need to think about our male and female bathrooms. And we have families that are dealing with these issues. And so I look at the Billy Graham rule and I say, I'm so happy for you, senior pastor, that you feel like you can travel with that 20-year-old seminary intern on your business trip. But I am telling you, that is no longer above reproach. That is not the right way to think about providing safety for you, your marriage, your leadership, your church, and this young man. That is not the right way to think about it. And so we need to expand that to be more reflective and more appropriate for the culture we live in.
1: So you don't think it's too harsh? You actually think it's too lax or incomplete? It worked really well for 1948. It, it goes, was can, can awesome talk, in
2: 1948. Yes. Can
1: you talk a little bit about the Modesto Manifesto? That was new information to me. And I, you know, everybody knows. Well, a lot of people know the Billy Graham rule: as you don't travel alone with a woman, you don't meet alone with a woman, you don't have, you know. And that was to protect their marriages because pastors were falling in the 1930s and 1940s too. They were having affairs, they were making mistakes, but there was more to it than just the sexual component.
2: Yes, so I found this super interesting. So 1948, Billy Graham and all of his team were in Modesto about to do a big evangelistic uh, crusade. And evangelists were very popular then in the 40s. They would travel around. So he wasn't the only show in town. You know, he's the one that we all know about now, but there were a lot of people doing this kind of ministry. And they had colleagues that were um, being exposed in the paper as having affairs in all of these towns. They were, um, but also they were taking advantage of different parts of their ministry. And the media were following the attention of these big crowds gathering, and they started exposing these kind of hypocrisies that these Christian evangelists were doing. And so Billy Graham took him and his team, and they basically said what can we do as a team to keep our integrity, particularly as it relates to the media? Because we, uh, our brothers are just being totally exposed, which they should be. We don't want to endorse that. But what can we do to make sure that nothing in our ministry gets misinterpreted and and um, put in the papers that we wouldn't want there? And so there were four, four areas that they felt like were the most scrutinized by the media and had the most opportunity to be... Um, if they were to like lead it incorrectly as a ministry, uh, the most kind of tempting areas that they wanted to make sure that they didn't fall into. So the first one was actually about money. Because these big crusades could be very emotionally manipulative. And so they just determined we will never do, you know, a typical love offering, which is that, you know, uh, pass the plate at the end of the service when you feel totally spiritually moved. We'll never do that. We will always do our fundraising before we show up. So we are never tempted to ask for money from churches or from people attending or from anyone. We want to be above reproach in money. The second was dangers of sexual immorality. And this was, they were all traveling for weeks at a time. Their wives were back home. They had very little communication. We live in a totally different world now. I travel, I talk to my family, you know, two or three times a day on FaceTime. You know, we're very connected, but they could maybe make a phone call from the, the hotel office. There weren't even phones in every room. So they wanted to make sure. And up until that point, I thought it's so interesting. It wasn't a big deal to go and meet a woman for lunch who was a donor or a church person or what, that was not even a thing. But they decided to make sure no one got a picture of them at a restaurant that could show up in a newspaper. They wanted to avoid anything like that. The third uh, pillar was to uphold the local church. They saw evangelists coming in and basically rallying everybody to themselves, getting money from them, having them support their ministry, and then they'd leave town. And the local churches were really destroyed in the process. And so they were like, we will always create our ministry strategies around ways to uphold the local church. And I know when I was growing up in the seventies, we had Billy Graham come and I remember my local our youth group went and the local church was a part of it. And I experienced that it was a beautiful thing to see all these churches come together. So that was on purpose from them. And then the last is how they handled publicity, particularly reporting their numbers. You know, there was a tendency to do what I call pastoral math, which is you round up like way up. So you get, you know, seventy five ah. people at something and they say, There's nearly two hundred people here. You know, so that was happening with these evangelists, pastors and they do not just don't struggle with that
1: anymore. <laughs> Particularly male pastors, just to set the record straight. Oh my gosh.
2: Those things are all relevant. Total. Totally. Oh Well, yes. And so my thing was, gosh, I wish we had, I wish we had adopted all four of the Billy Graham rules. how ah. be- much better and more trustworthy could our ministries be if we actually just worked on integrity, not just not meeting with women. So I think yes. we have the wrong conversation from that.
1: Right. And then you're suggesting the sibling test, which is like, you know, treat someone like an actual brother or sister and don't cross that boundary, the screen test and the secret test. So, can you go into those cuz I thought this is your expansive definition. It's like it has to be more um yeah, it has to be bigger than just I'm not going to have lunch with you. So, what are what are the other right. two, the screen right. and the secret?
2: So, The other two that John Ortberg lays out for us is the screen test that you can ask yourself, I'm in a conversation or I'm in this situation, and if someone were to take a movie of this and play it back to my spouse or my leaders, would I be embarrassed? Would I be ashamed? Would I need to be defensive? And it's a really good test. And to be honest, it's not that out of the question that mm-hmm. someone's got a camera on mm-hmm. you, watching you, what you're doing, and about to play it back on, you know, Instagram or something. So uh, that screen test um, is just a good kind of check in your gut of, am I going to be embarrassed or defensive about this? And then the third one is the secret test. This has to do with inappropriate intimacy. Am I keeping secrets with this person that no one else? I don't want anyone else to know about. And in when you have intimate relationships, like we do have secrets with our spouse, but we really shouldn't have secrets right. from other people. And if you're married, it's, you know, am I telling this person a secret that I wouldn't tell anyone? But I actually think we have so many single brothers and sisters that the Billy Graham rule isn't even helping them. Again, I think we need to expand it. Uh, because it really has to do with if you're married or I'm not with someone who's not my spouse. It doesn't give a lot of guidelines or help for wise decision-making if you're single. So the secret test is, do I have secrets with someone inappropriately? And until you're married, like keeping lots of secrets with someone, male or female, whatever the relationship, your boss, your your own assistant, like those things always end up kind of biting you in the end because there's this level of connection and secrecy that just isn't helpful, particularly in leadership and definitely in ministry.
1: Well, and isn't that the gateway to an emotional affair?
2: Oh, absolutely. You are exactly
1: right. Like, where where you start confiding in somebody else the things that really should be reserved for your spouse if you're married or your best friend um, you know and it gets inappropriate because you're in a, a position of power or that kind of thing um, so I'm just curious you've 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 upheld the Billy Graham rule what do you think should happen like if you were sort of waving your magic wand Should men and women eat together? Should we not? Like, if you're if you're executive pastor and the senior pastor, what are the boundaries in terms that you would find helpful being there? Obviously, the secret test, the screen test, the sibling test. So there's nothing inappropriate. But even in terms of meetings, like what is what is healthy, what is not? I'll give you an example. When I've had senior female leaders on my team, uh, they have sometimes said because I practice the Billy Graham rule. Wow, you will go out to lunch with frank but you won't go out to lunch with me like it's 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 reverse discrimination you're trying to protect me but i feel like i'm not able to get ahead as much any thoughts on that
2: absolutely and i would say i don't know that i necessarily uphold the whole billy graham room i love the heart behind it but again i think the practices are not relevant anymore and so uh i think in terms of that when it comes to leadership development particularly of women The part that I like to talk about is this idea of always taking two. So in leadership, we have this sort of always take someone with you rule. Like if I go out to lunch, I should take someone with me and turn it into a mentoring moment. Or if I'm going to the hospital and meeting a family there who's in crisis, I should take someone with me. So my my kind of thesis is why not take two people with you? So if you're going to take one of your employees out, Carrie, also take another one. So even if it's another guy or if it's a guy and a girl or it's two girls, but if your rule is always to take two, then the women on your team have just as much opportunity to spend time with you as the guys. And that's where it does feel discriminatory because those casual conversations, those uh, affinity connections, the, um, the casualness, the friendship that builds, the chemistry, the understanding of your mind and your vision and where things are going, all of those really, the higher you go in leadership, the more those nuances matter. And so if women are always left out of those more casual conversations, there is a limiting factor to it. I think in terms of kind of practices of meeting alone with someone of the opposite sex, I think the key word for me is just transparency. So I think some practices that many churches have, the Billy Graham rule for most churches is more than just eating alone with someone. It's also things like having windows in all of our offices. But again, that's about yep. transparency and I should have that if I'm meeting with a woman. I should have that if I'm meeting with a guy. I actually should have that if I have my team meeting going on and there's something we're fighting or we are, you know, having a food fight or we're totally kicking back and drinking, you know, what something we shouldn't be drinking. Like there should be transparency about all of our behaviors, not just about sexual impropriety with a woman on the team. And that's where this becomes so limiting to women is that these principles of integrity get narrowed down to this one behavior and this one potential sin rather than the issue of integrity and sin in our leadership in general. And so if we can raise that level of conversation and care about it from a broader sense, I think that we'll go further faster with our leadership. Uh, another one is I think on those principles, we just need to teach about it regularly. We have to teach about personal purity. So much of this is abstract. You mentioned emotional affairs. I think we would be shocked if we could do some sort of research project and find out how many people working in churches are actually in some sort of emotional affair or or Uh, Tempted with it. Like, I think that is way more prevalent Mm. now than we ever realized. I think in our digital community, we're connecting over uh, social media and private messages and Snapchat, which goes away in 24 hours. So then no one even knows I did it. Like, there's just, we're just like set up to have these kind of secret connections with people. In fact, the last two churches I've worked with that have walked through a moral failure. They never got together physically. The Billy Graham rule was absolutely moot to them. They never went on a date. They never took off in a car. They didn't meet for dinner. It was all done electronically through fake accounts and made up emails. And so that's what I'm saying. I don't even think it's giving us the protection we think it is. And really with all these issues, we have to get back to the heart. So making sure we're teaching on those uh, purity issues and holding one another accountable to it, creating safe spaces for people to process this. I think it is loaded for young Ministry leaders who, if they were to actually come to their spiritual leaders and confess what they're struggling with, could lose their job. So how do we create some safe spaces where we actually can encourage people to be honest and grow through their weaknesses rather than feeling like you're you're either unemployable or you're leaving the ministry entirely? And then I think really making sure we establish some good new boundaries that kind of are more fitting to our culture. This
1: could totally be a podcast episode by itself. So I acknowledge that. And, and that's been so helpful. One of the practices I have on the no secrets rule is my wife has a password to everything I do. And so does most of my team, actually, just because we're a virtual team. Uh, like, you know, there's a few things that only my wife has passwords to, but I live an incredibly transparent life. And and that's good, I, I think. Like, do you think that is part of the progress we need to be making on that? Any Any thoughts on that?
2: Absolutely. I think, I think the more we can uh, position our own lives to be transparent and open, we position ourselves to have built-in accountability. Yeah. I don't think it's really about one person I have coffee with once a week and tell them my darkest sin. Again, I don't think that's real accountability because I can spin that however I want. You know, it's really about these people that we have, we do have trusted people that are in our worlds and are seeing the things we're doing and um, not only feel like they could come to us, but we're inviting them to come to us. You know, hey, I noticed you got that email or that guy talked to you that way. Or why do you keep talking to or sending messages to so-and-so like, Sometimes I don't even know what I'm doing, but sometimes I do. And the fact that other people can see it and are a part of it keeps me more accountable. That's true.
1: I think I mean, I do talk to women via text sometimes or whatever. And occasionally, Tony will be like, why are you texting her? And I'm like, here, you want to have a look? And, and I mean that. Like, go look at the message thread. And there is tremendous relief for me as a man and I think transparency in that so
2: yeah and I think too it does free it up like I I know because I'm not on a church staff now this was like a question for me like whoa now that I'm not forced to live under the Billy Graham rule will I meet a guy for coffee I don't know what I want to do about that talk to my husband about it talk to my family and Um, And so just having the transparency and accountability that people know where I am and know what I'm doing, I actually have more freedoms to connect with more people in more ways because it's all within appropriate boundaries and the right kind of transparency and accountability. So... I always joke that, you know, I can't go, uh, when I was on church staff, I can't go sit in a, in a uh, Starbucks with someone where there's 30 people around and everyone can hear my conversation, but I can be in an office with some guy all day that works for me. You know, the chances of having inappropriate conversations are greater in my church office than at Starbucks. So yeah. just thinking and, and challenging our assumptions about what is actually functional and what's actually helping.
1: Well, and it kind of goes back to the idea that no external regulation is going to solve a problem of a lack of internal discipline. In other words, mm. your your internal discipline, your internal tegr- integrity, uh, will will make you rise or fall as a leader, and external regulations are only going to make you more devious, right? Oh, that's so true. Yeah, so true. Well is said, good. Katie. I can't believe the time's just flown by. Um, anything else you want to share? And then I'm going to ask for a few first steps because people might be going. Oh my gosh! Now what? Like we are a disaster. So uh, when it comes to creating a great work environment for women, or really for anyone, what? Uh, any final thoughts from you?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I just want to encourage people. I think this is this does feel like a minefield a lot of times, and it feels loaded and emotional. And there, for many women in particular, there are a lot of emotions about this and. Um, it can be easy to sort of want to pull back from it because it's intense or you don't know what you're walking into or you don't want to be especially the bad guy in the situation And I just want to encourage you that the guys who are making steps forward and are asking questions and really listening to what women have to say, it has really been beautiful to me to watch the healing that is taking place and the beautiful outcomes that are happening. And it might be bumpy along the way, but there is really, I really just see the Lord bringing a great unity about this topic. I'm hoping this book has some practical steps to help you know what to do and how to do it if you're unsure. Um, but I, I really am encouraged about, um, that the future, you know, I, I hear our culture say all the time, the future is female. And I actually resisted writing a book about this cause I didn't want to be lumped into that, but I really do think the future is together. And so if we can overcome some of these cultural things we've inherited and, really um, forgive one another for things that we've experienced, maybe not directly from each other, but from what we've had in our church histories. I think we can really help the church move forward in this topic. And most importantly, we can have more leaders working in local church, caring about people, sharing the love of Jesus, ministering to a lost community. That's what this is about to me. It's not about women. It's about having enough leaders released to fulfill the mission that God has called your church to. And I think this could really be a way to unlock some potential that right now is sitting dormant.
1: Well, and I just got to say, one of the things, one of the reasons I was so anxious to have this conversation, it's been confirmed in the interview, is I just, so much of the conversation around this area has an agenda. Like you just feel like, whoa, I'm stepping on a minefield. I think you diffuse the mind and mine And so I'm really grateful. It's a book I'm going to be sharing. It's a philosophy I'm going to be sharing. And I think, I think it's exactly the conversation we need to have in leadership as we move forward, regardless of your theology. Uh, So Katie, any first steps for people who are like, wow, this feels like a giant mountain to climb. What's one or two things leaders can do in a very practical way that will uh, make it better?
2: Well, I think one of the most important things that all leaders can do, whether you're male or female, is to talk to some women leaders in your church and just ask them about their story. You know, what is it like to be a leader here? I really want to understand. And then really taking the time to listen. I think it's it's easy for all of us to just jump to conclusions or kind of put our own assumptions into someone else's story. But even the act of asking and listening is incredibly healing to women who have felt overlooked or passed over or undervalued and so even if you just had one or two conversations in the next week it could really begin to open your eyes and it could really bring affirmation to some of the women on your team and then I think secondly if you want to help women know they have a place in your church figuring out some ways to give women some visibility that fits within your structure again even fits within your culture these are sometimes slow moving topics but I would encourage you just to you know invite someone to come and stand with you as you take the offering or, you know, have someone who's in the choir step out in front to lead the song with the backup singers. You know, it doesn't have to be something dramatic or a big controversy, but just leaning into making women have a presence as well as any minority in your church, by the way, but just making sure that, that the people in your community are represented on your platforms and in your leadership and moving towards that goal really can can make a big difference in, and say a huge statement to the people in your congregation.
1: Katie, your book's a gift. Tell us about the title, the release date, and where people can find
2: it. Sure, it's, uh, the title is Developing Female Leaders, and we are releasing it on March fifth. Although you can put a pre order in now if this is coming out before then. Uh, yeah, I and- should know that, but I. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, find out more information either at the website for the book, Developing Female Leaders Book.com. There's some downloads on uh, the theology question and some other resources that might be helpful if you really want to explore this topic more. And you can also visit my website at Katie That's K A D I. C-O-L-E dot com. Uh, and I would love to connect with you. If you're working on this topic, I'd love to hear your story and, and hear what you're working on.
1: I would just say uh, one final word. Men, you need to read this book. Seriously, probably even more so than women. Guys should read this book. It's a super, super helpful gift. Katie, thank you so much. I'm sure this won't be the last time.
2: Thank you, Carrie, so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Well, that was refreshing, wasn't it? Hey, you're going to want more. So head on over to the show notes. You can find them at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 253. Everything will be there, including transcripts. If you're a transcript person, thank you to all of you who continue to leave ratings and reviews. They mean a lot. We are climbing up to a thousand reviews on iTunes. So thank you so much for that. And wherever you listen to this podcast, just share it with your friends, uh, put it on social. And we're so grateful for that. Hey, uh, do not miss out on Pro media Fires special. They've got 40% off their Pro media Fire bundle. Okay, so this is their media bundle and it's 40% off, not this month, for life, for life. What will that get you? Sermon series graphics, social ads, sermon bumpers, whatever media your church needs. So go to promediafire.com forward slash carry before March 31st to get 40% off. It'll be there in April, but you're going to miss the deal. So 40% off promediafire.com forward slash carry. Get 40% off for life. That opportunity is going away soon. Now, this podcast is not, so we will be back with another episode, actually, in two days. Later this week, we are going to sit down and have a great conversation with Hayden Shaw. He is back on the podcast talking about generational differences and how to lead through generational tension at work. Here is an excerpt.
0: So Here's what's interesting about this. Horror tells us what we're scared of. Horror films as a society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still old enough to remember doing atomic bomb drills in grade school. We had Godzilla, we had Mothra, we had these big monsters that would land and scare a lot of people in Japan. And then we ended up with Xers and the birth rate was so low with Xers, they're so, so much smaller of a generation. And the sociological explanation for why Xers are smaller is their parents didn't want them. The movies were about the devil baby child. So we had a whole genre of <laughs> the evil baby child and going all the way to children of the corn when Life Verse were over three million, and Children of the Corn was one of the few Stephen King flops, huh? Didn't do well because we then had Raising Arizona, Three Men and a Baby, and Baby Boom, which were low budget breakout films, and we gone from Children will eat your life, and then Children instead of consuming your life, they transform your life.
1: All right, so that's coming up in a couple of days. Again, subscribers, you get that automatically. To subscribe is free. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back with a fresh episode on Thursday. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth
0: to help you lead like never before.